Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Isha Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. David Scorton, President and CEO of the Association of American Medical Colleges, the AAMC, a not-for-profit institution representing the nation's medical schools, teaching hospitals, and academic societies. We'll be asking Dr. Scorton about what led him to choose medicine 50 years ago and why after a career that's included two university presidencies and leading the Smithsonian Institution, he found himself still wanting to return his roots in the medical field. We'll also be talking about the lessons we're learning from COVID and inequities in the healthcare system and the value of the medical profession. Thanks so much for being with us here today, Dr. Scorton. It's an honor. Let me just uh, comment uh, to congratulate you all on the podcast. It's really an important thing and you guys do it very well and it's, uh, it's an honor to be on. So thanks for having me. That's really kind, Dave. I appreciate that. I, I'd love to just start by learning more about your background. What drew you to medicine in the first place? So my family was um, a family that uh, did not have a tradition of going to college. Uh, my dad uh, got to his last year of high school. My mom finished high school. I had one sibling who began college and then had to drop out for a while for economic reasons. And so uh, there was a great, uh, great desire for people in the family to advance themselves through education. And my dad uh, was an immigrant from what is now Belarus, Russia in those days. And uh, this was a very, very high priority, even though they didn't have that history themselves. So from the time that I was quite small, uh, they told me that it was important to get a higher education and go as far as I could get. On the other hand, I was interested in being a musician. I grew up in Los Angeles and um, I really wanted to be a musician. And so eventually we had a meeting of the minds and I did what my parents told me and I went to college and then went to medical school. I was not one of those people who from the age of four or five always knew I wanted to be a physician. Uh, That came later on. And what really attracted me to medicine was the humanistic aspects, interacting with people, uh, at a humanistic level and trying to get to know them, their problems, their fears, and understand uh, what life was like from their point of view. So it wasn't really from a scientific background. The first thing I'll say is definitely call me Rishi. I'm a pediatrician and so even my patients call me Rishi. So definitely feel free to call me that. I'm so charmed by your background. Uh, do you mind walking me through your work then as a clinician and, and what led you to that path to running Cornell University and then after that University of Iowa? When I first uh, started medical school, as I mentioned, I was interested in the humanistic aspects of things. And um, I found the first year a challenging year. In those days, the way the curricula worked, uh, it was uh, basic sciences of various kinds. And it was fascinating. But what I really wanted to do was to interact with people. And so when we started to do clinical rotations, even learning how to do the history and physical examination, I found myself uh, in a a sweet spot of joy. Uh, Later on, I was pulled to cardiology for sort of a funny reason, I guess. I liked the rhythmic aspect of the heart. I loved listening with a stethoscope. I had first been uh, attracted to pediatric oncology, but I ended up in cardiology and eventually ended up moving a little bit back toward the pediatric age group, taking care of adolescents and adults, mostly young adults, with congenital heart disease. And then w- once you're doing that, then what was the, the step that prompted you out of the clinic and into the university as you, as you became kind of in charge of the schools? And, and then how did you translate those skills 
as a clinician to the skills that you need running a university? Well, I'll tell you the story. I was, uh, I was very, very interested in um, applied math and uh, medical imaging. And I worked with a group of engineers beginning in my cardiology fellowship and then following along in my faculty life, initially at UCLA and then at the University of Iowa to use computer imaging techniques, image processing techniques to analyze and improve the assessment of cardiovascular imagery, echocardiograms and uh, cardiovascular uh, angiography, especially coronary angiography, CT, uh, MRI. So I had an appointment both in the School of Medicine and in the School of Engineering at the University of Iowa. And uh, at one point, I also was in the Division of General Internal Medicine. And the department head of the whole Department of Internal Medicine needed someone to fill in as an interim head of general internal medicine, which I did. I enjoyed administrative work. I found that clinical training was actually terrific, terrific training to become a leader because number one, as physicians, we learn to operate under conditions of great uncertainty and you still have to make a decision. When a patient comes in and asks you uh, to help them get through a, a problem, sometimes an urgent problem, you have to begin to make decisions right on the spot. And secondly, we learn uh, to listen to our patients before we act. And those two attributes, uh, decision-making under uncertainty and listening first before you give forth, uh, really were very, very helpful for leadership. So I eventually was appointed a permanent head of general internal medicine for a few years. And then they were looking for someone to be the head of uh, the clinical aspects of the whole department of internal medicine. And I got that position. And then the university was looking for someone who had one foot in the non-medical campus and one foot in the medical campus. And I was hired to be the vice president for research. And then eventually I was chosen to be the president of the University of Iowa. I was very, very happy there. Then a wonderful opportunity came at Cornell University and I was president there. And how the Smithsonian happened was, as I mentioned, I was always very interested in humanistic things, the arts, particularly music in my, in my case but the arts in general. And the Smithsonian was looking for someone with both a scientific background and an artistic background. The Smithsonian, even though we know a, a lot about its history and art museums, is also a powerhouse of science in the country. In fact, in the mid 19th century, uh, when the Smithsonian was established, it was to a great degree responsible for a lot of American science. And so uh, they wanted someone to be able to, again, bridge those two worlds. And I had a fabulous four years there. Every single day at the Smithsonian, I learned something from people who were far more expert in the things that they knew than I was, something I also learned at universities. And then after four years at the Smithsonian, an opportunity came up to return to my healthcare roots. And I failed to mention, Rishi, that... Um, while I was president at the University of Iowa, I still had my regular adolescent cardiology clinic. And while I was at Cornell, I did much less patient care, but I still did a bit of teaching and a bit of consulting. So during the Smithsonian years, I, I basically was uh, divorced from uh, healthcare. And when I had the opportunity to come back to healthcare, it was very, very attractive. I had been on the board of the AAMC about a decade ago, so I knew the organization fairly well. And so it's been a wonderful year. I just finished my first year anniversary, and it's been great uh, to be there, especially at a challenging time. It's actually wonderful to be able to try to contribute under conditions of urgency 
especially when you have experience in leadership. So what you just walked me through is, is an incredible uh, background, and you've worked in all sorts of different settings. Just to recap for myself, clinical settings, managing universities, Smithsonian, back to AAMC. Culturally, what were the differences and distinctions you noticed between these very different organizations? Their similarities were much, much uh, more numerous than their differences. These are all decentralized, creative organizations loaded with smart, creative people. As a university president or a secretary of the Smithsonian or as a president of the AAMC, the best I can do, and I'm, this is no false modesty, is to know a few percent of what's going on in the place that is consonant with my own background. So at a university or the Smithsonian where they cover everything from astrophysics to poetry, I found those organizations to all be very similar. And no matter how many titles you've had, how many letters you have after your name, what you learn by leading those kind of institutions is a lot of humility and a lot of uh, opportunities to learn. And there was a lot more commonalities. There were some differences. The Smithsonian is a private institution in the sense that it's not an executive agency of the federal government, but it's really quasi governmental. I was not a government employee. I was not a political appointee, but we adhered to a lot of governmental rules and regulations. And I found that actually very interesting. And probably the most unique aspect of the Smithsonian was its board. So the board consists of nine private citizens, six members of Congress, the vice president of the United States, and the chancellor of the Smithsonian, the person who chairs the board meetings, is the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And so I would sit next to uh, Chief Justice John Roberts at the meetings in a huge, gorgeous round table. And um, uh, at first, of course, it was quite intimidating. He's a person of enormous, enormous intellect. And he was, uh, surprisingly for me, incredibly engaged with the Smithsonian, as were the members of Congress and uh, vice presidents. Everybody's interested in the Smithsonian. And so that was quite a different experience for me. Uh, you know, it's always uh, daunting to go to your board meetings. But when you go to the board meetings and you're sitting next to John Roberts, a tiny bit more, more daunting. And he was plugged in, uh, ran fabulous meetings, just a, just a wonderful leader. There were some differences. That's remarkable. I mean, just imagining that visual of you next to a Supreme Court justice. I'm always struck by kind of where people have been, but also when they've been there. And you said you've been at the WMC for about a year now. And, and the timing could not have been more interesting, right, with COVID-19. Uh, I know you, you just put out a piece, The Way Forward, on COVID-19. Do you mind speaking to kind of the impetus for you doing that, for the WMC doing that, and, and really what, what you're trying to capture there? The WMC released, uh, this is going to sound a bit presumptuous, a roadmap to reset the country's response to the pandemic. And the first two words in the op-ed that I authored were, we're failing. And uh, the message was not uh, to be a message of finger pointing, which does us no good. It was not a message to be divisive. We're already too divided in the country. It was a message to say that all of us all of us are failing, failing to do the things we know we should be doing, failing to be patient with the pandemic running its course, however long that takes, and that we need to pull together in a comprehensive, unified way. And so we promulgated 11 action items, nine of them immediate, urgent action items, and two of them longer term. 
And we cover the things that you might expect as a physician uh, and an expert in this area, you'll understand more than a lot of people, the importance of having sufficient supplies to do the test, the importance of having sufficient testing and as I mentioned in the op-ed, there's nothing we want to do in this country, whether it's reopening schools or businesses or getting people back to work, nothing that does not require more testing than we have right now. And then, of course, the issue of face coverings. But we also covered some other issues that are very important. For example, our country has very predominantly a healthcare insurance system based on employment. Over 50% in normal times are covered by employers' health insurance. And when uh, someone loses their job because of the economic downturn from COVID, which looks like it's going to be with us for a while, both COVID and the downturn, well, they get two pieces of bad news, right? They get one bad piece of bad news. They've been furloughed or worse, laid off. And then secondly, they lose their health coverage through the employer. And so we recommended, for example, since there's a mechanism, which uh, your listeners will know quite a bit about called COBRA, we called for Congress to consider partly subsidizing COBRA since people immediately out of work are not gonna be able to afford to pay the combined premium that would have been paid by employer and employee. There's also this tremendous problem with health inequities in the country. It didn't start with COVID, but it's been further unmasked by COVID. And shame on me and people in my generation and medicine and leadership positions, because I have failed and I would say my colleagues in my generation have failed to move the needle sufficiently on health inequities, whether that is black men in medicine, Native Americans, uh, Native Alaskans, whatever it is, we're just not doing the job we need to do, nor are we doing the job we need to do to remove the horrible degree of uh, racism and uh, uh, inequities to which our vulnerable populations are, are prone whether they are people of color, people who don't have a home, uh, people who are incarcerated, whatever it is. And so we had some emphasis on that uh, in the piece as well. And then uh, we also talked about the need for the country to invest much more aggressively in public health. As you know so well, uh, Rishi, because we have done so well with public health measures like sanitation in our country and infectious disease uh, research by the uh, Tony Fauci's of the world, public health sort of took a back seat to what seemed like more urgent matters, not just for years, but for you know a decade or more decades, I would say. And now we're paying the price for not investing enough in public health. And so we talked about that uh, quite a bit and not all at the level of the federal government like the CDC, which I believe sorely needs more investment, but also state and local public health departments where a lot of the action is even right now. So with that in mind, I'd love to know what is the AAMC and maybe even specifically what you're doing to engage with students and student organizations uh, to make sure that you understand their issues on race and inequality issues that are happening right now. So the AAMC, I take no credit for this, had a long tradition, for example, of having a med student and a resident on the actual board. So among my bosses is a student and a resident. And then I'm big on town halls and broad meetings. And um, there's a group called the Organization of Student Representatives. There's also an organization of resident representatives. And I have periodic evening webinars with the administrative board, sort of an executive group for the student organization, the resident organization, and learn what their concerns are and so on. And 
Of course, COVID is, is tough on students. It's tough on aspirants. It's tough on those applying to residency. It's tough on residents. Of course, it's very tough on practicing physicians. And so we've tried to listen to uh, concerns uh, during this period of time where everything is topsy-turvy. We have in our audience a lot of students, uh, as well as practicing physicians. What, what advice would you give them as they're emerging into their own careers uh, during what is uh, a very unusual time? And, and maybe they have no kind of benchmark to compare this against. Well, none of us has a benchmark to compare against this. Um, I'm uh, 70 years old, and I certainly don't have a benchmark. Uh, my dad and the family traveled over from Eastern Europe during the influenza pandemic a little over 100 years ago. And the only benchmark I've ever had was stories my dad told me on his knee about what it was like to come over in a ship uh, loaded with influenza during that pandemic. So facing the realization that uh, there are experts that we can turn to, like yourself, uh, infectious disease experts, obviously Dr. Fauci and many others, and really, uh, really knowledgeable people who are running agencies and doing things Great, great respect for many of the people uh, who are helping us through this uh, pandemic. Still, none of them, no matter how experienced they are, has gone through something exactly like what we're going through now. The combination of a pandemic and then a very profound economic downturn caused by the correct thing to do, and that is to stay home, stay away from each other and shut down group activities. And so the advice that I uh, give people is to, whether you're a practicing physician, whether you're an aspirant, whether you're a med student or resident, take some time every single day to look in the mirror and take stock of how you're doing. Take care of yourself. One of the problems we have in the medical profession is the bravado and the combination of that bravado along with the stigma of asking for help for mental health uh, kind of help is really uh, potentially a killer. And I mean that uh, exactly what, what I said. There was a time in my career when I first started med school where because of my dad was ill and I found med school challenging and very distracted, I needed some counseling, I got it, it really helped me. And um, I've told students far and wide to think about that, that if, if I could do that and succeed in my life, you can do it as well. One year at Cornell, Rishi, we had six student suicides. And um, I uh, said to the student uh, population there, if you learn one thing at Cornell University, learn to ask for help. And I'm saying that to those listening to your excellent podcast right now, that look in the mirror every single day and make sure that you are taking care of yourself. It's not selfish, it's necessary, it's the right thing to do. And if you find yourself anxious, if you find yourself depressed, you will not be alone. And the best thing you can do is to ask for help. There's many places to ask for help. If you're a person with a religious leaning and you have a relationship with a place of worship or someone uh, in that profession in the clergy, that's one way. If you're a student, uh, you're going somewhere that I'm sure has a robust student health service, that's a good place to go. If you're a resident in the hospital setting, there's more of a psychological problem of not wanting to admit what people see as a weakness. It's even more important to push through that before uh, things get out of hand. And what I'm very concerned about 
is not just depression, but suicidal ideation and suicide. And as we all live through the horror of losing one of our colleagues uh, right in New York City just several weeks ago, this is a kind of a pandemic for those in the clinical setting, which is wildly frustrating because we're all taught to push through problems and help our patients. And mostly up till this point, until we recently were able to administer remdesivir to very sick patients and perhaps de dexamethasone in different ways of proning, different ways of helping uh, ventilation, pretty much we're giving supportive care and not definitive curative care. And it's so hard, isn't it, Rishi, for us to accept that and see patient after patient after patient succumb to a pandemic for which we cannot do anything definitive. So please know if you are facing these kinds of issues, you are not alone. And that a lot of us face the same kind of issues. And the more you take care of yourself, the better you and your family and your future would be. That's my advice. That's very thoughtful. I, I got chills when you talked about the six suicides at Cornell. I have had a faculty member from my medical school, one of my teachers commit suicide, a family member has committed suicide. So it's close to my heart as well. Dr. Scorton, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure getting your time and your wisdom. Thank you. Me too. And uh, allow me one more time to congratulate you and your colleagues at Osmosis. I think it's very important to get a wide variety of good, reliable information uh, out there right now. It's a very scary time for all of us and you guys are doing a great job and I congratulate you, hope you do it for a long time and please take care out there. So thank you so much, Dr. Scorton, again for joining the program. I, I appreciate those who are tuning in and listening right now. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.